the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. Down in Dachau Blues. All the pots you When the goldfish, the harmonious dance, ratchet buds burst. The way you were dancing, I knew you'd never come back. Hello, and welcome to you Track by Track Presents your... Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted as we go through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's legendary 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Dachau Blues, which is track three on side one of the album. Uh, it was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California in March 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, the personnel on this track is Bill Harkleroad, a.k.a. Zuthorn Rollo, on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, and Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals and bass clarinet. The length of the track is 2 minutes and 21 seconds. Uh, My guest today is avant-garde rock royalty. You likely know him as the lead singer of the Mighty Oxbow, a group that has, over the last 30 years, produced a series of brilliant, uncompromising albums, most recently 2017's masterpiece, The Thin Black Duke. He started with the ferocious hardcore group Whipping Boy, has sung with Bunwell and with Shoo Shoo's Jamie Martin in the project Salminio. He is an author of the novel A Long Slow Screw and the wonderfully titled Fight, Everything You Ever Want to Know About Ass-Kicking But Were Afraid You'd Get Your Ass Kicked for Asking. He also writes for Ozzy.com, amongst other places, hosts the Ozzy Confidential Podcast, and hosts the Eugene S. Robinson Show Stomper on YouTube. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome Eugene S. Robinson to the show. Mr. Robinson, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, nice of you to ask. And it's, it, I'm sorry, it's Jamie Stewart from Juju, not Jamie Martin. My apologies. I I, uh, I meant to... You can tell that I'm not exactly a professional at this. No, 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 no. I thought, I thought, I thought you probably were thinking about Kevin Martin from uh, Bug and God, who was one of the first people to bring Oxbow over to England. Um, but Stuart is in in Salminio with me. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm going to to take that uh, little out that you just gave me, and uh, rather than admitting that I just wrote down, <laughs> it's up to you. That's your issue. <laughs> So um, I wrote, reached out to you to be on the show, um, partially because I'm just a huge Oxbow fan, um, but also because you wrote an article for Aussie.com on Trout Mask Replica uh, that was titled The Greatest Least Successful Record of All Time. <laughs> um, with And there's a, a line in there about uh, Captain Beefheart, also known as Don Van Vliet, scorched the earth, leaving a history of music poorly understood or not understood at all, all perfectly embodied by his third album, Trout Mask Replica, which says in one sentence what I've been trying to to piece together over the 28 episodes of this podcast. So I guess my, my first question is, how did you first encounter the music of Captain Beefheart? It was probably the same summer, and it was uh, Whipping Boy was on tour. It's cohered around two places. It was either we played a show at the Marble Bar in Baltimore, and the promoter let us stay at her house. And she was friends with Fred Frith and all these different people, uh, Henry Cow. And she is the one who either uh, um, said, you need to listen to this and, and gave it to me to listen to. Or and that's during that same tour when we were in Texas um, and staying with the Butthole Surfers, uh, Gibby 
gave it to me. So and and I've gone back and forth in trying to remember which whether it was Tina or Gibby, Gibby or Tina. But at this point now, I, I, I cannot I cannot remember who my desire is to say that it was Gibby based on the timing. Um, and, um, and, uh, I, I remember being, uh, uh, you know, coming, coming, merging, having a mindset that was at that point, getting me set up for moving beyond hardcore. It was, there was mm-hmm. only so much stuff that, that I was going to be open to. And that was so anarchic, um, that I think I felt, com- it felt like a comfortable, sensible next step for me. Um, even though, of course, this was music that was made, <laughs> no, <laughs> when I was five, you know. So, right. Um, so that I think that was the the original introduction. And was was Trout Mask the first album that you heard? It was most indeed, yeah, most definitely. That is starting you in at the deep end. Um, so the uh, and and I guess I'm not terribly surprised that it would have originated from the butthole surfers since they definitely seemed like a group that was very open to psychedelic influences <sighs> and things that were. Outside standard punk rock. Well, um, you you have to remember too that this was that there it was a weird it was kind of a weird time and weird space for music. If you know, you know the British musicians who had a, who came from a rock lineage where they had esteemed American blues, um, you know, kind of hit a wall with U.S. audiences who had who had paid attention to like same kind of str- stranger elements. Of of British punk rock, you know, like Sid Vicious wearing a swastika. So when the Clash tried to have Grandmaster Flash open up for them at Bonds in, in I'm a native New Yorker, so this was happening in New York at the time. It it, it, mm-hmm. it was not it was not well received, right? And um and the whole New York scene in, in indeed was not well received. <laughs> You know, so when you play music that was clearly um, derived from the the American blues, it it, it 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 was shockingly pleasant for me on on multiple levels. You know, um, and um, and I think maybe it sort of explains a divide where the people who know me from the hardcore aspect of music they don't know anything about Oxbow at all. <laughs> like I've seen guys, really? I've seen guys at shows you know, festivals where Oxbow has been playing and they're like, Eugene, what are you doing here? Is Whipping Boy playing? No, 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 no. Oxbow's playing. And they just look at me like I, like I, you know, like I spoke Serbo-Croatian or some language they didn't understand. They, they absolutely positively haven't made the, haven't made the jump from Whipping Boy to Oxbow. And I'm not saying that, that it, it's fueled by, by Oxbow's clear connection to the blues, I mean, if you remember, I mean, I don't expect you to be a super big Whipping Boy fan, but we had a blues song on the very first hardcore record called Burrito mm-hmm. Burrito King um, that was put on without explanation or it was just there. You know, we just put it on because we liked it. Um, but it was nice to see it was nice to see uh, Van Fleet do this kind of unapologetically and in a different way than British musicians had 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 done when they reinterpreted American blues by way of like Led Zeppelin, the birds, you know, the faces and so on. So yeah, he, he it wasn't a for Van Vliet. It wasn't like a worshipful appreciation of of American blues. It was kind of a recontextualizing it, and right. shifting it out into into uh, 
outer space. So you were in, you're a New York native, and you were in New York in like 75 to 77 when things were really kicking off with yes. the, the New York the New York punk scene. I, I, I didn't get in until 77. Um, but yes, that's uh, and, and mostly because in 75 I was 13 and spending most of my time running from uh, the Jolly Stompers, <laughs> which was <laughs> which is Mike Mike Tyson's gang at the time uh, from Brownsville. Oh, good God! I had run afoul of them and so <laughs> I spent the entire year doing that. So, um, but I was already listening to challenging music. But my preoccupation was just kind of staying alive. <laughs> yeah, I can see um, how that would be the case. Yeah. Um, was the blues something that, was that in your background? Was that something you had listened to as a younger man? Or was that something you got into a little bit later? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, my connections to the South, you know, my, I, in my family, the oldest family member I've known Oh, let's see, my great grandmother, and so we were well, and we were well in the north. We hadn't been, we don't have family connections to the south going back until at least mm -hmm. like the 1870s, right? So it, it was always there was blues was always not so much spoken about as being country music, but it was like country music, right? So okay. we we listened to we listened to R and B um or or pop or what was on the radio i started branching out with my own musical taste probably around you know i started listening to metal um you know, i think i was 12 um which is maybe when I, it gets a lot of people and then punk rock when i was about 15 um but uh, the blues started to be significant for me actually when i was a, a freshman and and i was interestingly enough living across the hall from Emmy 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 winning actor who's on that show Brooklyn Nine Nine now uh, Andre Brower. And Andre Oh wow okay now, yeah Andre Brower is from Chicago but he um you know his family was originally from Mississippi. So music that he would have played just to play music, I remember him um two songs. Uh Evil which is a Howlin' Wolf song where it was, you know, kind of drifted through our doors. I ran into his room. What the hell is this? This is great. And then um, I think this is a great song by Bobby Blue Bland, which the, I love the lyric, which is, uh, uh, I know I'm an alcoholic. Sometimes I regret it, even when, especially when the liquor store won't give me any credit. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I said, you got to give me all this stuff. So that's when I started listening to the blues fairly heavily. So With with Oxbow, you are kind of, obviously the blues is a, a major influence in, in the sound of Oxbow. Do you feel that there, there is a Beefheart influence in your music? No, not at all. No, no, not, not. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot about about him. And clearly, when I was working with Pete Johnson, you know, I told you at Apple, who produced Bat mm. uh, Chain Puller, or it was a Shiny Beast, I think was a record. Um, he had heard something in Oxbow that caused him to say to me, "Have you ever heard of Beefheart?" <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that's when he revealed to me that he had produced those records. And um, and so he heard something. But I, I never I never I mean, outside of I would claim Muddy Waters as an influence before I would claim Beefheart as an influence. Um, sure. And uh, and that's mostly because, I mean, the group was founded You know, I, I founded the group, but it was pretty quickly became a product of um 
of uh, me and and uh, Nico Nico Winner, um, who's mm-hmm. a guitar player extraordinaire, and I, I'm not quite sure if he's a huge Beefheart fan, but I do know very definitely that he was much more of a Zappa fan, and clearly it's because as a guitar player there was much more stuff happening. Um, um, on guitar at Zappa than there than there was in Beefheart, so that would make sense to me. Though he though 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 he and I have never spoken about this directly, it should be noted. Um, was Oxbow started explicitly as a attempt to reach beyond hardcore? Did you have like a a set of of like a genre or a style in mind when you set out Oxbow, or was it simply a just moving on to a new project and it evolved as it evolved? No, I, I remember talking to Biafra at the time, and I was saying that the, the real struggle and what I really wanted to do was to capture the music that was in my mind. And he just kind of mm-hmm. laughed. He kind of laughed at me at the time and said, "Well, that's what we're all trying to do." And and his use of the word "trying" is 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 what kind of uh, you know kind of. It seems strange to me. Like, you know, we spent, we had to make decisions about food versus studio time. And if we're going to make right. those kind of decisions, it seemed to me that we should be comfortably beyond the trying phase. We should actually be doing, not trying, right? So, um, but then also I, I went through, you know, like Wire magazine calls it some unspecified disaster. At this point, it was well documented that I was like, thinking, you know, what, what, this is, there's no reason to be on this planet anymore. You know, but I'd like to I'd like to leave leave something a little bit more a little bit more significant than just a suicide note. So let's do something musically that will will perfectly express the manner in which um, I'd like to address the entire universe. And uh, and so I had the lyrics laid out and uh, I started drumming and and playing some of the bass. And then I realized it's really going to be incredibly difficult for me to musically kind of get that across. And that's when I pull, pulled Nico in, but you know, it, it as a suicide note made a good sense. Cause I didn't know anybody that had really done that before, you know? So, um, at the very least, uh, at the very least, it felt to me to be <laughs> novel that way. And the fact that it was ultimately eventually well received is probably what kept me on this planet so it it was produced with that degree of emotional intensity then that that like this is my last message to this place before i get the hell out of here kind yeah of yeah i was upset stayed that way i guess through half half of halfway through king of the jews which is uh what what in the, what in the industry we call a segue <laughs> <laughs> uh since we're talking about dachau blues uh yeah but 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 that was um and and that's why i thought it was appropriate in the intro when you mentioned martin uh, uh, like a kevin martin because he was the one it ain't in though he and i are no longer actively engaged in a friendship um he was the one who discovered oxbow's first record which was called fuck fest uh based on the title and the cover alone um and sign and brought us over and reissued the record in the uk and actually, mm-hmm. you know, kind of let let me know by way of letting the world know that whatever you're doing here is more right than wrong. So maybe I have him to credit for me breathing and walking around. We, we are certainly, those of us who are, are music fans are certainly grateful that you are for uh, for nothing else if, if the, the amazing music that you've provided to us and of course for the, the value of uh, your life and your family. So I'm I'm glad to hear that that is is in your past and that is an incredibly intense place to be coming from yeah in in producing a creative work 
Well, I think I think somewhat it 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 showed with the music. So, and I mean, especially at the time, this is why when the folks who were in the hardcore heard it, I think they were like, "Whatever, man, we don't, I don't know what you're fucking talking about. We're out." So, which which was fine, which was fine. The uh, experience of of making Trout Mask Replica for the the uh, for the Trout Band, I I don't know that it comes from a place of certainly uh, intensity. Um, much of that imposed by. Van Vliet, rather than coming from any kind of um, inherent emotional distress of the the band members, he kind of facilitated this incredibly tense and uncomfortable environment. And uh, the reason, so so most of the guests I've had on this show, I've um, I've given them the opportunity to select a track that they want to talk about. And uh, Mr. Robinson uh, indicated that he would he would prefer if I picked a track, he thought that would be more interesting. And so I selected uh, Daco Blues as the song to discuss, um, primarily because it is uh, the grimmest and most intense, uh, particularly lyrically, of any of the songs on the album. And uh, in Oxbow and in Whipping Boy, you certainly never shied away from from dealing with incredibly emotional, intense, and disturbing content, as, as it can be evidenced from the, the place that you were coming from with those early albums. Um, so I I guess my first question should probably be how do you approach writing lyrics? What what do you have a, a standard method of sitting down and writing lyrics, or does it is it always changing? If you go from Fuckfest to the most recent uh, Thin Black Duke, um, that was a song cycle for us. You know, all of those records from Fuckfest to King of the Jews to Let Me Be a Woman to An Evil He, the, these were all part of the same story, and you can't understand those. It's, it's. I mean, you can. You can pick up a book and read from page 180 or page 70 or any page you like. But it, in the mind of the creator, that was a set. And the lyrics, because it was a set, they it was they were themed, right? So it was it was very easy. Like whoever makes a Star Wars movie now doesn't get confused about the movie they make. They know it's going to have robots and people running around and something about chasing something, something. So it was um, being able to follow the Sturm and Drang of, of, of my life from early suicidal ideation to it being okay is what you have in all those records, which are seven or, or, or eight records. So it was it was much easier to, to write a lyric in that setting because I knew what I was talking about. I, the, it is focused on uh, on the entire song cycle. The new one, Love's Holiday. Is this? Um, do you feel this is the start of a new arc for you, or is this kind of a self-contained? Peace. No, it has to be. And and one of the things that started after, well, when we had done probably the last video for for um, for Thin Black Duke was I, I had started to well, start to want to talk to the rest of the band about it because I didn't I didn't want to make another Oxbow record. Right. Mm. And so the easiest and cheapest way for me to do that was to um just do another project with somebody else. I'm going to, I'm going to stand in this comfortable, uncomfortable spot till I figure out how to make the kind of music that is relevant for a guy who is me at the point in time I'm making that music. And so it started to happen with thin black Duke. And it's like, I don't want to manic manufacture hysteria that then I get on stage and translates to the audience as, wow, man, Eugene's really rocking out. I want to have mm-hmm. a really, you know, I want to have a, 
a truthful and direct conversation with people. And you can't be the same guy screaming at the at, it, like I pull up a bar stool next to you and I can't be the same screamer, <laughs> you know, the, of, of the fuck fest guy. Oh, are you sure. still screaming about that? Or, or the, the king of the Jews guy? Are you still? And if you paid attention to the vocals, the tone and the timbre of my vocal delivery has changed over the records. There is actually like almost crooning and singing on Narcotic Story and certainly on uh, on Thin, Thin Black Duke, m matching the emotional tone and timbre of me and my real life and my place in space. It's it's really interesting to me that you use the analogy of, of a conversation. I, I had a, a talk with, and I'm recording these episodes all out of order based on who's available and when, but I had a conversation with uh, David Greenberger, the guy who... Um, yeah. He does a lot of other stuff, but Duplex Planet is probably... I love, the, I love that guy. He's a friend of... Well, an associate from way back. He used to publish... When I was publishing The Birth of Tragedy, he was giving me stuff to uh, to publish from Duplex Planet and The Birth of Tragedy. So, yeah, I like him he's, a lot. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy and just and super phenomenally nice. Just very, very generous with his with his time and everything. But he, yep. we we talked quite a bit about about conversation and and his his feeling that conversation is kind of and I, I'm probably paraphrasing him here and and I hope that I'm getting the gist of it correct but that conversation is sort of at the heart of human experience uh, yep. at the heart of connecting with with other humans and we have this tendency to want to narrativize things and tell things as a story that have you know a definite beginning middle and end but that the actual moments of connection that we remember and that form our experience are you know not even deep conversations, but you know, just the more quotidian con daily conversations yep. of, yep. you know, did you did you pick up the mail? Did you go you yep. know, get the groceries or what have you? Well, and then if you take one of my favorite playwrights is uh, you know Pinter, and you know he he works a lot oh, with sure. that. He works a lot with that kind of space, both between words and the words themselves. And and I, we watched the uh, Jarmusch documentary on Stooges, Iggy and the Stooges last night, and he was like. So weirdly enough, talking about one of my favorite comedians, uh, I mean, he's about, he's older than I am, but I remember the show, the Soupy Sales show. And apparently at one point, Soupy Sales said, look, I want you to send me your ideas in a postcard, but make them not more than 25 words. And he, it had always stuck with him, he said. So he wanted to, he said, if I can't get it done in, it was like a rock and roll version of Twitter. If I can't get it done in 25 words. Maybe maybe I'm overthinking this, communicating in, in the way that we've, we've chosen to do so. Um, and, and that's usually the thing that's, to me, most disappointing about television, for example, because they are fake conversations, masquerading as mm -hmm. real conversations. You people on TV are not really talking to you, but at the same time, it, it holds a great deal of sway over whether it's you know elevator jokes or you know office memes or... You know, this whole sitcom thing of somebody walking into a room, munching on a bagel and saying something kind of comical. It just really affects it impinges on the imaginative life of a people. I was reading an interview with you yesterday where you were talking about um, Jello Biafra and his his stage presence. You indicated that um, some aspects of his shtick were very Jagger-esque, uh, by which I mean, I feel like I'm being put on by Jagger. And, and I, I wondered I mean, you're a very charismatic frontman. Your your uh, Oxbow Live is is an incredible experience. It, it, do you feel at all like you are playing a part on stage, or are you 
is it like a channel? Are you a channel for the music? Um, what what is what is the the mark of authenticity in a stage performer? Well, this is this is this has come up before, and uh, I remember at one point in Germany, um, uh, early days. So this would be in the '90s, where uh, a journalist had come back and they were talking to us. And I, I've I've generally found that bands that are wild on stage are typically very calm people off stage. And of course, the other way works too. Bands that are very calm off stage are typically out of their minds when you get them back backstage in the green room, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's it's just strange how it works. I mean, clearly, clearly, there's some sort of you know catharsis occurring uh, as part of the stage show, or at the very least, you're tired and all the uh, you know those hijinks, whatever that might get people going backstage. You just don't have the energy for. But um, so they came back and they were like ready for something and i had this experience the first time i saw lydia lunch do some spoken word and she did it with kern kern was involved and they had manufactured this whole stunt thing which was in, involved a fake stabbing during the show mm -hmm. the broken bottle against her head that precipitated it was very real yeah, you know, I mean, I'm looking for the club security. There's nobody there. And it's like, all right, mm -hmm. super Eugene, here I go. But she, I looked to her. She would have been my trigger. And she didn't seem to be very bothered at all. So I was like, all right, cool. This is maybe part of the show, I guess. So then I have to seek her out to get to talk about the interview afterward. And she's this club in San Francisco called, uh, oh, my God, I can't remember, oh, The Oasis. And uh, she's walking up these stairs behind the club up to the dressing room. And I go, um, uh, Lydia? And she turns around and she's like, yes. <laughs> and I go, I'm Eugene, you know, the interview. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come on up, you know. And so I had to make sense of, okay, this is what I just saw happen, right? Like I've been in fist fights before and I know – you know, at the conclusion of the fist fight, I'm at the very least breathing. It takes me a while to get back to normal, but she was very normal. So I had to decide, is what I saw artifice or is what I'm experiencing now post facto artifice? And this is what the journalist in Germany had to go through. It was like, you seem like such a nice guy now, but that's not what I saw on stage. So where does the truth begin in fiction and I go, you you really have to expand your worldview because both things are true. And both things can mm -hmm. be true at the at the exact same time. Um, what is that line from that old Black Flag song? I want to make you feel um, – I want to make you feel how you make me feel. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a mystical ceremony that's cheapened by where it started, which was – you know, churches, religious, religious, uh, uh, expressions. Um, so, uh, that's kind of what's happening, uh, what's happening on, on stage. Now, it, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I listened to your, to your Aussie Confidential podcast. You were, you were a teen bodybuilder prior to? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mr. Teenage, Mr. Teenage Bath Beach, Mr. Teenage Bensonhurst. Uh, I mean, these are not shows that I won. These are shows I com mm -hmm. I competed in, you know. Um, but you were on stage like, yeah. from, from a very young age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I got was uh, Gertz was a big department store. They had Gertz Baby of the Year. So if you, I think I, I actually put the winning photograph on my 
Instagram page at some point or another. But that's uh, that was the beginning. And then pretty pretty soon after that, uh, musical theater. <laughs> I was a Tin Man. I was Captain Hook. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, so uh, yeah, I, uh, I I felt and I did. You know, I mean, weird stuff would happen when I was six. I organized, I organized this kind of dance recital, right? I didn't organize mm-hmm. it. We performed it. And the teachers were like, what are you doing? I go, I don't know. It's just this cool thing. And they were like, can you do it again? I was like, yeah, I think we could do it again. And so they invited all the parents to the school. Um, it was in Brooklyn Heights, I remember. And all the parents kind of came to the class like at four o'clock. And we performed this kind of ritual dance thing that i had invented <laughs> you know i just forgot about that until just now it's funny that's phenomenal mm. how you ended up going in into singing and being a frontman for whipping boy but it seems like that's an obvious natural progression from from yeah. where you were where you were coming from well everybody in high school who knows me was surprised um because i hated all the theater people in high school so I didn't do any theater in high school. I mean, but I was going on auditions and trying to get uh, movie roles. I think the most, the biggest audition I had during that time was uh, for Woody Allen movie, um, which I'm guessing would have been um, Manhattan, based mm-hmm. on Manhattan or Annie Hall, based on the timing. You know, I had my headshot and was going, and I was booking. I got a lot of textbook work, you know, so print print work and textbooks i didn't get anything mm-hmm. really substantial um so they didn't know that i was interested in acting and i mean any average friend in high school uh, um a friend of mine was training with stella adler um oh no i'm sorry oh, wow. yeah uh, was it either stella adler or uda hagen and um i couldn't afford these classes but she would take her notes from the classes and give them to me which i still have so i maintained an interest all, all through um, music, it was funny. And I, I had friends in my homeroom class. Uh, my high school, actually, you got guys who were um, in bands that did well, like uh, Urban Blight actually was a noteworthy band at the time, like a kind of a jazz funk thing. And then um, Necron 99, one of the early new wave bands. And well, one of my best friends in high school was this guy, uh, Mark Pishko. He had a Polish polka band. I used to tour and put was probably the first person I know to ever put out a record. Um, so I was interested in music and I started going to see as soon as I could go to see live shows, maybe 76, 77, um, something clearly I started to do. That's interesting that you, that you picked up on that, that, um, that zine, that publication. And that was kind of a, that was a, a call from, from, an, from what, from your future calling, I, I guess that's, it's, always fascinating to me those moments where you get these little transmissions that seem to be from another world or from another part of of society that you're not necessarily familiar with but it opens up a door and it's like okay i need to be a part of this i don't know exactly what it is but i absolutely have to get involved with this in some way shape or form a friend of mine who's a writer had a great phrase for it that i always liked and it's always it seemed emblematic and stuck with me and that's it i call it life's meandering crossroads (laughs) you know Ooh, so, I like that. Yeah, so it's it's where where things take you sometimes. One of the major formative things for me was in 1979 going to see um, Gang of Four um, 
because most of the music I had seen to that point had had shtick as as being part of what they did, you know. And mm-hmm. Gang of Four was four guys just pretty normally just came out, played music, and, and the show was great. It was you know emotionally impactful. Well, as luck would have it, Beggars Banquet, their record label, presently now, and Matador Records called me about a month ago and they say, hey, would you write? They we're doing a box set, a 40-year retrospective. And I found, like you found the, the beef art thing. I found uh, your Aussie piece on Gang of Four. Would you want to write it? And I was like, sure. I, I got do I, I got to interview them. And they're like, sure, you can interview them. So from being this you know 16-year-old kid in the audience, and, uh, 70-year-old kid in 1979, watching Gang of Four to like, zoom calling them and doing these interviews to actually just fin i just finished it yesterday um the piece for their box set it's like i was telling my wife it's a pretty phenomenal journey it's like i love joy division i interviewed some of the guys in joy division i you know i love gang of four i interviewed the guys again and it, it continues you know and then at one point i was telling my kids that like this house everything my whole life has come from music and art and literature and writing and journalism so i wish it would have made more money how about that <laughs> i think that is a common a common lament of many, exactly. many great artists exactly uh, and i'm sure captain beefheart and his his magic band certainly would have would have liked a little more yeah, he financial was, remuneration he, he, he was interesting that way he i mean i'm sure he his connection to zappa saw zappa you know secure rewards that were over and above what he himself but you know he he also chose to he was a special case and he chose to live life uh, very differently and i have friends now like pete stall from was the first one to turn me on to it who used to sing for that band scream who is doing all that desert desert dwelling you know there are plenty of places you can live in america that are are wonderful places and that are not super expensive I don't want to live there, but, you know, he grew up there, so it was all right. Lancaster, Glendale, these are, you know, or further out into the Mojave. I mean, yeah, the, if you can handle the heat, which I, I'm far too much of a, a wimp for that. There's a big difference between the heat in 1980 and the heat in 2020, so, <laughs> yeah. True enough. Yeah, he, he, I don't know, if he were still alive, I don't know that he could do it now, so. One thing I wanted to ask about, um, and, and I think I, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I will see um, in discussion of, of Dachau blues. And, you know, this, this is lyrically incredibly visceral. It's dealing with, you know, a real life event, real life, you know, one of the most horrific tragedy of the the 20th century. Um, And uh, it's, it's the third track on the album, which is definitely, you know, you're thrown in at the deep end on this, on this record. Um, And, you having um, dealt with extre- you know extremely visceral, difficult lyrical topics, and you were just discussing the the Lydia Lunch show where she was speaking explicitly about her her uh, rape and and incest. I guess is there any subject that is off the table for dealing with in rock music? No, no. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that you can do that's um, artful. And uh, or or that that allows itself to be artfully interpreted. Uh, I I can tell you, uh, I can tell you in my personal life, I've only begged off of one thing, 
right? And keep in mind, I've been like an edge dweller for a long time. And Adam Par Adam Parfrey at Feral House had had a guy who I've been known associate God rest his soul or whoever rest his soul um, have been known associates with since the eighties, right? And uh, he's pulled me in at odd times to write stuff for them, and I've written about some of the books they've done. And he was doing Apocalypse Culture number two, and I ran into. Uh, a support group and went to some meeting up in the Pacific Northwest of, you know, bestiality, sex assault survivor group. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know. And then, of course, given the time period, that was the same time period that people were being exposed to Peter Sotos, who uh, put out the the book Pure, and then Jesse Helm, he was arrested, and it was like, became this whole arts right thing, and he wrote exclusively pretty much about child rape and child killing, and mm-hmm. um, and a friend of mine said it best about, well, Albini is friends with Sotos, and wrote the cover blurb for it, Sotos is a nice guy, I mean, you know, this is what he chooses to write about, it's not nice, but he himself is a nice guy, but a friend of mine Whipping Boy's old guitar player said to me, he goes, uh, I could understand writing, writing, you know, story like this or even two. And he grabbed Pure, or Total Abuse, which was a collection of all the Pure writing. And it was a book, you know, it was a coffee table book. And he starts shaking it in the air in front of me. He goes, but this much? This much? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I said, but, clear, but yeah. whatever. I mean, clearly this is the guy's preoccupation, but... Um, outside of that, outside of that, if you can build some sort of personal connection and do so artfully, you know, I'm game. I mean, like, I, I don't have to like, um, you know, like it is with hardcore, you know, there were a lot of weird outcroppings. Like I don't have to like screwdriver and neo-Nazi, you know, kind of ethno white ethno state Aryan nations skinhead shit. I don't have to like it, but I, I, I certainly think it's artistically valid. You know, mm-hmm. well, that's a very magnanimous approach to take when it comes to to uh, neo Nazi. Hey man, I used to have a record store, and at one point, um, somebody was upset because I was selling. I think I was selling screwdriver records, and uh, and I don't remember this, but the guy who's now I've maintained a friendship with me he said yeah I remember what you said when I when I gave you a hard time about it I go what did I say he said you said yeah I'll sell them their revolution <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like you know if you if you don't see that there's a great irony in buying a screwdriver record from a black guy an overpriced screwdriver record like triple markup from a black guy then, then, then you'll never know what irony is. So, at, yeah, at that at that point, they're they're probably too far gone for anyone to reach them anyway. So, <laughs> I'm not a big Christian. I'm 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 not a, I'm not a big Christian rock fan either. Boy, that is an interesting intersection: uh, neo Nazi skinhead punk and Christian rock. That's well, these are people with really hardcore, uh, unlikely to, unlikely to be changed beliefs about the world around True. them, which I, I don't happen to share. So, absolutely. Well. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I really, really appreciate you, you being on the show and, uh, but however, discussing everything. we didn't really discuss Dachau blues. <laughs> I guess we kind of didn't, but many of the shows that I've done have talked around and about and, uh, in, in relation to. That's fine. I mean, one, one of the things that I think that people have missed is that in, in 
you know, um, I think beef arts tribute to early uh, American blues, like there's any other kind to blues. Um, I, I, I think people have missed out. There was this weird, like, I'm sure you've heard the song, uh, what is it? Mean Jews dragged my Jesus down or something. There was this whole, um, there was no, no real understanding about Jews as anything other than the kind of biblically inspired, you know, boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, civil rights hadn't really started yet. And, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting to me that somebody like um, Louis Armstrong wore, wore a Magen David for his entire life because he was partially raised by a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. And so to him, they were just white people, but he saw them suffer, you know, horribly at the hands of of white Southerners uh, just for being Jewish, which blew his mind. It didn't make any sense to him. But so I think there was a tradition of, you know, a, car, a cartoonish understanding of, of, of the Jew um, in some of the early religious inspired blues, which is the antecedent that I think that Beefheart is referencing in that song. But that's it. That's very interesting. I, I am not actually familiar with the, the song that, that you mentioned, but the... Um... Uh, I'll find a link and I'll send it to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, it, that is an, an interesting um, connection to make, and that he would choose as you know a Gentile man who uh, you know does not seem to have any uh, Jewish descendants that or Jewish antecedents that I'm aware of. That this is material that he would choose to tackle. Um, I I've always it's. Um, it's certainly a weighty subject. It's certainly a, a subject about which he's he's singing with with uh, an impassioned, uh, in a, in an impassioned voice. I, I've it's uh, it's a big swing to take. <laughs> Let's put it that way on the song. Well, but 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 there's also there's also a big there's a big difference between, and it was it was an accidental that I mentioned. There's a big difference between him and mm-hmm. Screwdriver. Oh yes, <laughs> right a huge difference and and I think anybody of any level with any kind of discernment has figured that out. Oh, so. absolutely. Yes. That I mean his his writing is coming from a place of of compassion and of uh kind of horror at the one one current throughout so many of his lyrics is is horror at the cruelty of humanity uh, against the world and against animals and against other humans. It pops up on almost every album. Right. Um Right. And I mean, there is some degree of irony in that, given that he could be pretty cruel himself to his his bandmates. But um, it, it was obviously a subject that yeah, those were I mean, those are situations in which you had willing participants, right? I mean, as far as I know, he didn't handcuff anybody to a radiator and make them make the music they made together, right? No, he may have locked them in a bathroom overnight, but I... that that I heard. <laughs> That's why I did say I said handcuffed in a radiator. I don't know, locked in, locked into the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but you know, who among us hasn't done that? I've I've had a drummer try to flee, and I was like, Nah, man, you're not getting out of this van. <laughs> you're gonna finish this. You you're gonna finish this tour. Sometimes that's required. Yeah. Every once in a while, those really strong boundaries have to be established. <laughs> you you can you you can't you are a prisoner to art. You can't get out of this thing yet. So well, again, thank you so very very much for your time. Um, when oh uh, Darren the um, 
the guy who is the the creator of this show, when he's hosting, um, yeah. he will rate each song out of five. And I've said for every episode of this that I've done thus far that I rate every song on this album five out of five because I feel like they are incomparable. Not necessarily that I love all of them equally, but you can't compare them to anything else. They're just their own thing. Yep, I agree. I agree. Um, so uh, I I was going to say, if you'd like to rate the song, you're welcome to, but it sounds like you're that's not an area of particular interest no, for you. That's, that... And um, if you would like to, if there's anything that you would like to signal boost, anything that you would like to plug, uh, anything that you'd like to push, uh, the floor is yours. Um, since most of my writing stuff now is staged and tweeted out through this Twitter machine, if anybody is listening, doing the Twitter thing, I would suggest at Eugene S. Robinson is how you find me on Twitter. And I'll be, be glad to cue you into at least the written world um, if you just like to go to YouTube and you have a stomach or interest in partially on uh, MMA talk <laughs> the Eugene Robinson uh, show, Eugene S. Robinson show stomper is easy to find it's also on SoundCloud and uh, and Oxbow is everywhere and you guys are working on a new album that you're that you're anticipating within the next couple of years loves holiday, holiday most definitely Pro- yeah probably connected to when such time as humans will actually be able to tour again looking forward to those days um if you (laughs) if you would like to follow track by track on uh, twitter we are at underscore track by track if you want to follow me on twitter i am at joel a bakker that's b-a-k-k-e-r i am the same on instagram and uh once again mr robinson thank you so much for your time and your insight thanks please old man stop this misery they're counting out the devil with two fingers on their hands Begging the Lord, don't let the third one land on World War Three. On World War Three.